All right, today, the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, if you are following along this year, we are doing a foundations reading plan. It's called Foundations. We're reading through the New Testament this year. I hope that some of you are joining us. I won't take a show of hands because maybe you're feeling that like the schoolwork and the weather and you're just kind of limping along. And, um, but what we're doing is five chapters a week, so that's less than a chapter a day. We're reading through the New Testament. And so this week, if you have been following along, we were in these chapters. So I was uh, reading along my five chapters this week, and this is where this sermon really jumped out at me. It was, it, there was a few verses that I was like, that's really interesting. It kind of was one of those moments where you read the Bible and it just kind of comes alive. And you say, I've read this verse a number of times, but it just had a new meaning. Um, and so I really felt like this was a word that God had for us this week. So we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians as well as a couple chapters in the book of Psalms as well. But I mentioned the sermon series that we had done, long story short, and this will be kind of review. I'm not going to go through the whole Bible in five minutes, but there was a main theme that we talked about quite a few times through the Old Testament and the New Testament as we walked through it. It was this idea of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It was like God was saying, there's the old way we're going to have a relationship, and there's the new way we're going to have a relationship. And the Old Testament, we read it in the book of Exodus. It was Moses going up Mount Sinai, and, and you know the glory of the Lord came around, and a cloud kind of descended, and the people down below waited because Moses, their leader, was meeting with God. This was like God was going to say, here's how you're going to have a relationship with me. And Moses came down with the, with the Ten Commandments, and he also had a whole bunch of more commandments after that. It was a covenant relationship. It was the regulations and the rules that God laid out for God's people. And this was how you were going to have a relationship with God. It was rules. It was regulations. And in hindsight, we look back at that old covenant, and we realize it was impossible for them to succeed at this. And that was by design, that the people would recognize there's no way we can achieve holiness by following these rules. And it was designed to cause them to long for a Messiah, a new way of doing things. And that's what happened with Jesus. The New Testament came, and Jesus said to his people, I'm the new covenant. No longer the rules and the regulations that you're not going to be able to keep anyway, but rather a relationship with God where Jesus pays the penalty for our sin and we put our faith in him. And we are given mercy and we're given righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is what God sees when he looks at us. This is what is bestowed on us because of what we celebrated last week, Good Friday and Easter, because of the cross, because of the empty tomb. This is the new covenant, not rules, but a relationship. So much of the New Testament, and where we're getting to today in the, in the book of 2 Corinthians, much of the New Testament is writing to get Jewish believers who were so used to the old covenant to understand the new way of doing things. And you can understand that this would be deeply entrenched in belief and practice. These people, the, the Jewish faith, the Jewish people for generations had learned over and over and over again. It's about the rules. It's about the law of God. And so a lot of the New Testament writing is getting them to understand this new way of living in mercy and grace. And in our Foundations reading plan last week, we read one of those times in the book of 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is talking to a group of believers in Corinth. And he's writing again, comparing the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And that's where we're going to start today in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9, it'll be up on the screen. It says this in verse 9. 
Do we have that first scripture? If the old way, which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way, which makes us right with God? Now, let's leave that up there just for a second. So he's talking about the old way, which brings condemnation. Paul is saying, remember, the old way was all about rules that nobody could keep. So it always brought about a feeling of condemnation, like we're never measuring up. But it says, if the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, well, why was he saying that was glorious? Well, because if you remember the story, it was God appearing to Moses on the mountain. There was the glory of God. In fact, when Moses came down, they're like, he's like glowing because he's been with God. And they, ve- they covered their faces because the holiness and the righteousness, the glory of God was something to be feared and respected, but it was also a big moment. Like, this is a glorious moment where God is speaking to his people. So he's saying, if the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way, the new way of faith in Jesus Christ? How much more is that glorious? Because it makes us right with God. But Paul is writing and reminding this because something happened to the New Testament believers. Something happened to these Jewish believers and Gentile believers, these new believers in Jesus who were trying to understand the new covenant. Something happened, and what was well-intended was misinterpreted. And instead of salvation through rule-following, a lot of people were swinging way too far to the other side as a way of saying, okay, because of grace, well, now what I do doesn't even matter. Now my behavior doesn't even matter. It was about following the rules, but now there's grace in Jesus, so what I do doesn't really matter because I'll just be under grace. I'm saved by grace. I'll just ask for forgiveness. So it doesn't matter what kind of sins and iniquities and idolatry and unrighteousness I do because we're not under the law. We're under grace. And so Paul is trying to write and correct this misinterpretation of what the people were believing Because if you read through Corinthians, first, there's two of them, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to address some really, really prominent sin that is coming into the church. Paul is recognizing, man, this Corinthian church is messed up because they've taken this idea of grace and they've gone way too far. I mean, there's, if you read 1 Corinthians, you read about these great sins. In chapter 5, he's talking about a guy, a leader in the church, a guy in the church who is sleeping with his father's wife. And they're saying, and you're okay with this. You've got to understand this is not just about, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. We're under grace, praise the Lord. In, in ele- chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing this um, when people are taking the Lord's Supper, what we know as communion, people are treating it like a feast, and they're saying they're taking all the bread for themselves and leaving other people with no bread. They're seeing it as how much they can get for themselves. They're getting drunk on the communion wine, and Paul is saying, you're okay with this, and you shouldn't be. And so there's this understanding Paul is addressing that they've taken it too far. They're not following the rules, and they're just saying, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm under grace. In fact, these people not only were committing these great sins, but also because this understanding was so warped, they were boasting about their sin. And that's what Paul is addressing. They were boasting about all these things that were happening. It's like they were saying, we're so into grace, we've got this so figured out that we're even happy that we're committing these great sins because it shows the mercy and grace of Jesus. So it was really, really messed up. And that's what Paul is trying to get this group of Christians to understand. He's trying to understand kind of the middle ground here. He's, he's saying, yeah, we're not saved by good behavior and rule following, 
But we also ought to not take the mercy of Jesus for granted. It's not a license to behave however we want, and then we just hope to ask for forgiveness, you know, right at the end and clean the slate, so to speak. So it goes on, Paul, you know, I read those verses in chapter 3. In chapter 5, it goes on, and he's talking about how we are new creations. It's a very well-known verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person, a new creation. The old life is gone, and a new life has begun. And then the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 3 and verse 6, it says this. So this is, again, Paul talking to these believers. We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us. And no one will find fault with our ministry. And then verse 6, it says this. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy, and by the Holy Spirit within us, and by our sincere love. So these are verses that Paul is teaching to these believers. Now, I read that this week, and I read specifically that verse 6. We prove ourselves by our purity and our understanding. And I was, I was thinking about this. Okay, well, there's kind of a middle ground here because what Paul is saying almost sounds like the old covenant. We prove our faith by what we do. We prove our faith by following the rules, by pursuing purity and righteousness. And so here's the big idea that I want to focus on today. How do we live as Christians, as Christ followers, in freedom and grace and still live in a way in which our actions are honoring to God? How do we live under grace with the freedom that comes and the boldness that we have in our relationship with God, but still recognize, I want my life to pursue righteousness, to pursue purity? Where is that balance in there? And that's what I want to talk to us today. Because what happens is, well-meaning Christians for years, and if you were a kid that grew up in a, in a Christian home in the 80s like me, you went to youth group through the 80s or maybe the 90s, what happens was Christians came up with a lot of like new rules. Here's like new rules for the modern day. Well, Christians don't do that. You know, Christians, Christians behave like this. And in the 80s, I look back, were any Christian, ki- any Christian teenagers in the 80s? That was me, right? And you always had like these weird, I remember hearing my, my parents and other aunts and uncles and other people in the church we like to play card games. Well, there was a card game that was approved by the Christians called Rook, right? That was the Christian card game. But sometimes I played card games with the cards that looked like the cards that the casinos had, and those were not approved. And, and they would say, Christians don't do that. Christians don't do that. And, uh, you know, m- going to movies, well, we don't go to movie theaters, or listening to secular music or dancing. You know, these were some of those things that uh, you heard as a kid growing up. Christians don't do that. Christians don't do that. And I remember thinking, I've always kind of been a, a, a brain that kind of thinks, well, we, I question things. I always think, well, why? Why are these cards okay and these cards are not okay? I just remember hearing these things like, well, that doesn't seem like those rules really make a lot of sense, but we all had them. Maybe you grew up in the 70s or the 60s. Maybe you grew up, maybe we have our own rules that we hand on to our kids now. I'm sure if I gave my kid the mic, they'd say, well, yeah, Dad, you've got the rules that Christians do that make no sense to us. Maybe it's just kind of a rite of passage growing up in a Christian home. But Christians have tried to do this. We've tried to find that balance. We live in freedom and grace, but we always have kind of these rules. So how do we do that? Because one extreme, neither of them are good. We don't want to live under condemnation because, oh, I messed up this rule and now God's mad at me and I can't, you know, walk in victory or life or peace or grace or anything like that. But we also don't want to walk through saying, well, I'm forgiven, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. Is that kind of making sense? Either of those extremes are harmful to us. 
So I was thinking this week in terms of marriage. So I will use Christy and I. Christy is my lovely wife. She was up doing announcements, and right now she's probably feeling a little nervous that I said that. But I'll think of marriage as an example of this, of these two extremes. It would be ridiculous for me to have this approach when talking about my wife. My wife, I got her at the altar. She said, I do. She said, till death do us part, right? My wife is committed to me till death do us part, so I can do whatever I want, right? I can behave however I want because she has to forgive me because she's my wife. That would be ridiculous. And all the wives in here said, amen. Understood. Okay, we're all on the same page. But what also be wrong is if I had the mentality of my marriage of I nervously have to try to do everything my wife wants in order to make her love me. I, I have to follow the rules. I got to make sure that I replace the toilet paper roll when it's empty or close the cabinet doors when I pour my bowl of cereal or put the milk away. I have to do all these things. And right now Christy's saying, yeah, you failed in all of those in the last two days. But if I was nervously thinking, I have to do all of these things to try to convince Christy to love me and stay committed to me. Well, that's wrong as well. I'm not trying to earn her love, but I'm also not taking her love for granted, saying I can do whatever I want. Marriage is not me following all the rules in an attempt to make her love me, nor is it behaving however I want, knowing that she has to love me. But rather, because of my love for her, first, there's a comfort and security in marriage, because we know there's that commitment there. But there's also a desire for me to please her and to make her happy because of love, because of my love for her. It's an outflow of that, wanting to do the things that please her and make her happy. It's an outflow of that. So in regards to what we're talking about in the scripture today, our purity and our righteousness is not to earn salvation. It's not to convince God to love us, not to convince him to try to forgive us, but rather it's because of God's love for us, because of his kindness for us, it's an outflow because of our love for him. It's an outflow. I'm not earning salvation, but I'm living with gratitude and I'm pursuing righteousness. I'm compelled to honor you, God, with my life in how I live. Psalm 130 Um, Psalm chapter 130, I thought I had it marked here, but I do not. 130 verse 3. Had this verse that, as I was studying, it was kind of a cross-reference to this verse. Psalm chapter 130, it's, oh, I had it marked, I just didn't notice it. Psalm 130 verse 3 and 4 says this, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? And we can relate to that. But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to, and what's that word there? Fear you. That's weird, isn't it? If you kept a record of our sins, oh Lord, who could ever survive? We get that. We have fallen short, and that's a first step for us to recognize our need for a Savior, is we've fallen short. If God kept a record of everything we've ever done wrong, who could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness, thank you Lord, that we might learn to fear you. Well, why would fear be in there? I thought that was super interesting. Why is the word fear? There's forgiveness, and that leads to a fear of God. Well, fear isn't necessarily a nervous, anxious horror movie fear. Fear is reverence. Fear is awe and respect. Fear is worship. We've all heard the the term, the fear of the Lord. Well, that's a, that's a healthy reverence and respect to his holiness. It's not an anxious fear, but it's certainly not a disregard of his holiness. And most kids growing up in homes, I mean, maybe I won't say most kids, in, in my family it was this way, 
where I recognized my parents' love for me. I recognized they wanted good things for me. But I also recognized there was a healthy fear of my mom and dad. I also recognized if I pushed it too far, the wrath of mom and dad would come down on me. So that's kind of the same thing. It was never like, oh, I have to make sure I don't mess up because my parents will yell at me and not love me. But there was a healthy fear and respect. And most kids, we can kind of understand that. We don't push mom and dad too far. There was an understanding of unconditional love, but still a healthy fear, an awe, a respect, a love. So when we talk about God, this understanding of his mercy leads to a fear of God, a reverence of God, a desire to please God because of his love, because of his forgiveness. So in the, in the minutes I have left, I want to address the two sides of this reality that I talked about. This really is just a practical tool that I want to talk about so that we can take that next step of growth in our faith because I think a lot of times we get stuck in one of those two things, always feeling the condemnation because I'm not measuring up or we're just having a faith in Jesus and it's not really impacting our life. Nothing is changing. We still have the old self, the old habits, the old sin that just continue to repeat themselves. So first, anyone in, and maybe you would put yourself in this first category, and there are times where I have been this way, even recently in my relationship with God, there's times where I, times of prayer, I'll say, God, there's this area of my life I know you've been working on, and I keep, you know, stumbling here in attitudes and thoughts and words, and, and I keep thinking, man, you must be tired of me coming to you and asking for forgiveness of these things. So that's kind of the, the outflow of this being caught in the condemnation side Maybe you are in that side, in this camp, those who feel like you've messed up, who have areas in your life where you just keep tripping up. I'm there. Anyone can relate to that? And you just say, Lord, I, I cannot believe I'm coming to you today, and in my prayer time I'm saying, yeah, I, you know what, this is something, again, my whatever it is, whatever you want to say. And think about this. You know, it could be any number of things. And I won't list the rules of bad things, but it, how we treat other people. Maybe it's a, a thing where you're just easily angered and you go time and time again after you lose your temper with somebody. You go to God in prayer and repentance and say, God, I can't believe I'm having to do this again. I messed up again. Maybe it's just poor stewardship of resources or fearful, just a lack of trust in God. Maybe it's something to do with like a sin appetite that we have, what we view online, TVs, movies, what we put into our minds, how we view relationships, our relationship with Others in conflict, an addiction, an inability to forgive somebody, something, anything that we know God is working on in us, and we continue to mess it up. Has anybody ever been there? Right? Am I the only one? Okay, a few honest people here, and the rest of you now, your thing is dishonesty. You know, just <laughs> trying to cover up. No, I've, I've been there. I just think there's so many times, like, I, I look at it from a human point of view of, imagine, you know, maybe it's, I look at it as a, as a parent, and if it was, you know, talking to one of my kids, you know, I joked about it before, hey, when you're, when you're done getting a dish, why don't, you, why don't you put it in the dishwasher rather than leaving it on the couch or whatever? And, and like a thousand times later, when, when it happens again for the one thousandth time, my patience level as a dad is a little bit like, what, how many more times are we going to have to say this, right? We can relate to that. So we tend to take our human view of parenting and apply it to God, that God is going to somehow look at us with less and less patience every time, like, really, again? Again with the anger or the whatever? Like, uh, hello? 
It's easy to get there. It's easy and common to think that there's a limitation to the number of times that God could forgive us. And all that does is cause us to have condemnation, and it causes us to want to be nowhere near God after we've allowed something into our life, after we've messed up. We tend to think, I don't even want to pray. I don't even want to pray because I don't want to feel that guilt. I don't want to have to go again and be the, the dummy that just messed up again. And you think that God is mad at you, or you think that God is done with you, that God can't use you. But the other side, and maybe you would fit into this side, is the opposite view. Those who continue to just live the old life like nothing has changed. Thinking that the mercy of God is just easy to dole out, like it's a vending machine. Just, oh, here's my, my mercy, it's new every morning. And that it's easy to dole out, right? That there's no significance to it. There's no need to change behavior. Just live for yourself, put yourself first, and believe in Jesus, because behavior doesn't really matter because it's salvation through grace. Both of these views are harmful, okay? Both of these views are harmful. There is no condemnation and shame for those who are in Christ. The scripture is clear on that. No sin brings us into, con- into condemnation. However, every sin is grievous and serious, so much so that Jesus had to die for it, okay? It doesn't bring us into condemnation, but it is serious. It is not easy. Every sin we've committed, every sin we will commit was so serious that Jesus had to die for every one of those. I read a book earlier this year by Timothy Keller. It was actually on prayer. He was talking about this idea in our prayer life, how sometimes these views hinder us from going to God in prayer. And there was a quote from this book that I underlined and circled and starred because it was just so meaningful to me. So can we put that next quote up there? This is from Timothy Keller. We must recognize both sides, both of these aspects of God's grace, or we will lapse into one or the other of two fatal errors. And that's what I'm talking about today, these two camps. Either we will think forgiveness is easy for God to give, or we will doubt the reality and thoroughness of our pardon. I loved how he worded that. And he says, both mistakes are spiritually deadly. Either we're going to think that forgiveness is easy, just like, ah, it's no big deal, or we're going to doubt that we are actually fully forgiven. Doubt that our pardon because of grace is complete. And both of these mistakes are spiritually deadly. So when we read these verses, the Apostle Paul is writing to Corinthians. How do we approach our purity and righteousness honoring God without being a bunch of rule followers? Well, how are we compelled to do this? We are compelled by our love for God and his love for us. And we learn, and this is a step that maybe some of you need to take this week, we learn to find rest in his mercy. Maybe you are in that camp where you, one of the reasons you don't want to read the Bible or spend any time in prayer because you think it's just an angry God who's going to get mad at you for all the ways you've messed up. Maybe that's how you were brought up in your church tradition. So this week, I want to encourage you as your pastor, find a moment where you can rest and just begin to comprehend what it means for God to say, you are pardoned fully completely clean and pure and righteous. And when I look at you, I see the very righteousness that Jesus had. And just allow some of that guilt and condemnation to just kind of be lifted off of you this week. Maybe that's a a practical step you could take this week to find rest, to to be moved by his mercy. In Psalm chapter 63, there's a a few verses. I want to read Psalm chapter 63, verse 1 through 5. These will be up on the screens. O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. 
My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. Man, that's a key line that we want to remember. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. There's a couple lines in there that really apply to this idea of walking out a relationship of love for God. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. That's very literal. That's the writer of this psalm saying, anything that this world offers me, any temptation, anything that I seek after in this world pales in comparison to just knowing you, to just walking with you, just being with you. And he says it again in verse 5, you satisfy me more than the richest feast. Nothing I'm going to be tempted in Nothing that this world chases after will satisfy you more than a relationship with God. So when we're talking about how do I walk out in purity and righteousness, how do I walk that out? It's out of love. It's out of that relationship. It's an outflow of that relationship with him. Recognizing that when we have that relationship with God, and that relationship is right, we have everything we need, we have everything we really want. That is the the point we all want to get to. Now, we're always torn by different temptations and desires and other things that the world chases after. We, We try to find our fulfillment and value in all sorts of things. We mess it up a ton. But what we're saying... In, in Psalms here, what the psalmist is saying is being with you is better than anything else, anything that the world could offer me. The most important thing that I need and that I want, I have, and it is secure, a loving relationship with God. Being with you is better than anything this world could offer me. And so then we live with the commands of God on our heart because we love him, because we know that the commands of God for us are good for us. They are designed for us to flourish. They are good for us and the people around us. And then we recognize the patterns of sin in our lives. The Holy Spirit does a work where we start to recognize these patterns of sin. And we recognize how this hinders that relationship. And it hinders our relationships with others. And it brings harm to us and to others. And we begin to walk out and we say, God, I love you. Your love is better than life. I want to lay down these things. Everything you have for me satisfies me more than anything else I could seek after. And that's where we want to get to, right? Can we say we want to get to that point in our relationship with God? But some of you are here today, and there are days where I feel this way too. Some of you are thinking this very thought, but I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way. When I read the Bible, when I pray, I don't feel like a wow, this is awesome, this is the best thing I'm going to do all day. There's not that kind of built-in like feelings of it. It feels like work. That your love is better than life, I don't, I don't feel like that. So what do we do in that situation? Well, I want to encourage you just to take a step, just to invest. Um, get to know him. Do some of the work, quote-unquote. Spend time in the Word. Spend time in prayer. If you've been around Homestead long enough, you're probably tired of me saying, we want you reading the Bible every day. We want you spending time in prayer every day. This is why. And why do we do it? Because I want us to get past this 
Uh, I'm a Christian. I guess I'm supposed to read my Bible, and I'll read something. I don't understand any of those words, and now I'm going to pray, Lord, forgive me for my sins, and help the day to go good. Amen. I want us to get past this where, and the way we're going to get past that step is when we have a love for God, and we grow in understanding your love is better than life. So take some time. If you're not feeling that way, take some steps. And I promise you, God is going to draw near to you. When you draw near to God, he's going to draw near to you. Again, using marriage as an example, there are some days, this might sound scandalous, but if you're married here, you understand. There's some days when all the feels aren't there, right? Somebody? Somebody married? Okay, right? I know you're nervous because you're sitting with your spouse. There are some, I'm not looking over there either. There are some days where the fee, all the feels aren't there. And what's the, what's the right approach then as a loving husband or wife? It's not to say, well, I don't feel that, so I'm not going to do it. This marriage must be flawed or faulty or, or over or whatever because I'm not feeling all the things. And man, have we done a disservice to the idea of love and commitment in this country by making it all about how we feel on a particular moment. Because what do we do in those moments? We say, well, I'm going to walk out what love looks like. I'm going to lean on that commitment that we have, and I know, and 100% of the time it happens, in those days where all the feels aren't there, whether Christy or I do this, we take a step of commitment, even though we're not feeling like it, it always comes around. The feelings grow. That love grows because of the steps that we have taken. Is that making sense? So I want us to treat our relationship with God the same way. We want to grow in that idea of your love is better than life. But even if I'm not feeling like it, I'm going to walk it out. And I'm going to trust that as I do, God's going to draw near to me, and it's going to become way more than just trying to keep some rules and traditions. It's going to be a relationship of love that is flowing out of us. And as a response to his mercy and love, we're going to live and pursue righteousness. We're going to live and pursue purity. So as we close today, let's do this. Let's bow our heads in prayer just for a moment. And I just want you to do a little, take a little time for a little personal inventory. And we're not going to be raising hands or standing up or doing anything like that. Just between you and God right now, think about those two groups that I, just, that I um, described. Would you put yourself in that first group of, I'm just trying to keep all the rules to keep God happy with me. And I've messed up. And I feel condemnation, like God is tired of forgiving me. And if that's you today, I just want you to let the truth of Scripture kind of impact your life. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of your faith and your declaration that Jesus is your Savior, you are righteous. You are completely righteous in God's eyes. So allow the rest and the completeness of the mercy and salvation of Jesus Christ to flood your life. Jesus, do that work. Holy Spirit, speak to hearts that are weighed down with condemnation and guilt today because they don't feel like they're measuring up. I pray that there would be new life and forgiveness found in each person. And maybe as we have our, our eyes closed here and you're just kind of thinking about your life, maybe you would put yourself in the other camp where you're saying, I'm just walking through life and nothing really is changing. There's no love for God. There's no impact of his word on my life. I'm, I'm just kind of doing whatever I want. I'm living however I want. I challenge you today. Mercy of Jesus was not easy to give. It's complete and it is thorough, but it is not easy. Not something we should just take for granted. 
So Jesus, we, we pause and we repent for areas of our life that we have just accepted as sinful and we just keep around. We just keep those around. And today, Lord, we want to lay those down. We want to turn to you because of your love and your mercy. Because of your faithfulness and goodness, we lay these things down and we pursue a relationship with you. We pursue your standards of righteousness and holiness. We want to live according to the precepts of God and what we learn in the scripture. We don't want to just live unchanged lives. We want you to make us new. So God, we repent of areas of our life that we have held on to. We repent of areas of sin that we allow into our lives. And we allow that thorough mercy and grace to fill us and to forgive us. And now we walk in new life as new creations. So Lord, do that work. Holy Spirit, do that work in every heart, wherever they're at in these two ideas. We want to we be changed. We want to live in victory and boldness. We want to live in freedom. And so, Lord, I pray that you just do that work in each of us. Help this idea of faith to be something that's more than we just experience on Sundays, but we walk it out every day. So whether we're feeling that love for you or we're not, we want to take these steps. And I pray that this week, that there would be moments where we would read the word and we'd spend some time in prayer where we would sense you stirring our hearts, sense you stirring our affections for the things of God. I'm praying that over everybody who is in this room and everybody who hears my voice right now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.